Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Professor of History Philip Haberkern joins me. Phil is Professor of History at Boston University, MA at University of Virginia and Harvard Divinity School, PhD at Virginia, postdoc at Princeton, now at Boston University. Check out Phil's book, Patron, Saint, and Prophet. Jan Hus in the Bohemian and German Reformation. Phil and I both have a background in religious studies and made the shift to history, so you get to hear us talk shop about that. But of course, this is primarily a conversation about Tyrion and his exchange with the unfortunately oblivious Lancel Lannister. This was my very first conversation with Phil, and sometimes you have these first conversations and realize... Oh, like this guy is immediately a good friend. That's kind of how I felt about my conversation with Phil. So anyway, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I hope you enjoy it too. But further ado, here is Dr. Philip Haberkern. And you made the shift from religious studies to to medieval <laughs> studies. Yeah. Well, yeah, technically, I mean, just my PhD is just straight up in history. Okay. So, and that was a very much a pragmatic move. I had a wonderful... Um, mentor when I was in div school who kind of was looking at my interests and was like, for the job market, you should get a PhD in history, but you need to be thoughtful about where you go because there are going to be certain institutions that are more friendly to the kind of history you do. Uh Um, And so I ended up at the University of Virginia where I think every member of my committee was joint appointed in religious studies and history. So it didn't feel unnatural. Um, Yeah, so it worked out really well. But Thankful for that advice along the way. I, I wish I would have gotten that advice some, at some <laughs> point. <laughs> it's one thing to be overqualified for any, like, mm-hmm. like when I was on the job market, I was applying to, like, for every, like, one academic post, I'd, I was applying for, like, four pizza parlors mm-hmm. and not doing well in either pursuit. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it's one thing to be overqualified in academia, but to be overqualified in religious studies in academia, I mean, right. it's it's just like you must hate employment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's also I mean, I guess I got very lucky. And, you know, I, I remember this is the one interview I got the year I went on the job market because I did it in sort of a limited way. And it turned out that the chair of the search committee, you know, really liked the two sentences in my cover letter about a prospective second project, which 13 years later still has not materialized, <laughs> but uh, I don't think they can go back and take the job away. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> things happen along the way. And 
unfortunately, I've learned that I write, you know, I'm faster than George Martin, but not much. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess he writes a lot, just not what we want him to. It's <laughs> uh, probably the same is true of me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now I have to ask. Yes, you've got on your your Zoom image looks yes. like a Czech reformer. That is Jan Hus. Yes, okay, the, right. burned at the stake in fourteen fifteen. That's I, I wrote my. That was first, a great year to be burned at the stake. Great, great year, fantastic year. <laughs> um, no, so I, I wrote about him after he dies. Was my first book, and it's about commemoration and how it looks different in the Bohemian lands versus particularly in the Lutheran tradition. Very good. Very good. Now, Phil, I'm kind of interested in, I mean, I'm always excited to read Tyrian chapters, but I'm kind of interested in sort of a general question about the medieval world. Mm -hmm. I'm curious who has the power between the queen regent and the king's hand. Uh, it's such a good question because it's sort of central, right? When Lancel comes into the room and he wants to make the distinction between yeah. the regent who rules and the hand who serves. And one of the things I'm always struck by in the world of thrones is how informal a lot of the institutions are. And so I, I, it's almost less about the office and the person who's exercising it. Yeah. And so, you know, historically, there are a lot of analogs for this as well, where particularly, say, in the 15th century, if we were in the world of the Italian Renaissance, where you have, you know, these sort of uh, warlord princes who are often away doing their work as mercenaries, and they leave their wives behind to rule in their stead as regents. And some of them are incredibly competent, incredibly capable. And so in those moments, it would be sort of, it would be the analog of Cersei, who's clearly ruling. Whereas in others, you might have a senior advisor, a courtier who steps in if there's a different balance, we might say, of sort of expertise or confidence. So I think it shifts depending in that sort of back and forth between Cersei and Tyrion for who's actually ruling via control of the king or um, tight ties with the sort of small council. I think it's, it's, ever shifting here and that's the fun of it for martin is leaving the relationship ambiguous it really does sort of focus in on what martin has said is one of the key themes that he's interested in and that is you know where does power reside right Mm -hmm. well yeah and especially you know in this scene it's so wonderful because lancel comes in and tries to flex his power physical <laughs> by his rank as a knight uh by his wispy mustache mm-hmm. you know, that, that that doesn't work but you know he comes in and tries to set himself up as the dominant figure and you know if, both in the book but it's even more visible in the show there's just a lot of posturing and body language uh-huh. and yet you know Tyrion so deftly reverses yeah that power dynamic yeah um and, you know, you see him sort of relishing that at the end of the chapter as he recognizes oh, that he absolutely. has this thing he's longed for. So it's so 
I don't know. It's it's delightful. And Cersei sort of looms in the background of this chapter. She's not present. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't know. I, I have my own questions about her motivation with the relationship with Lancel. Like, is this purely pleasure? Is this sort of grooming a cat's paw? Like, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of, you know, how deliberate is she being and using her own vehicle for power, which in this case is her body, you know, to sort of mm. distance herself or buffer herself from this act of regicide. I don't know. I, I just, her motivations and exactly how controlling she is over Lancel, I think remains a really kind of fascinating yeah. open question in this yeah, chapter. Yeah. All right. I'm going to read my synopsis and we can sort of jump into these details. Great. Tyrion is visited by Lancel late at night. The newly knighted boy brings word from Cersei. By the Queen Regent's decree, Tyrion must release Pycelle from the Black Cells and arrest Commander Bywater for treason. Tyrion turns the tables on Lancel by uncovering his part in Robert's death. Lancel begs for mercy and promises to spy on Cersei, so long as Tyrion doesn't tell Joffrey. Feeling his oats, Tyrion sneaks through the brothel and rides to the manse for a rendezvous with Shay. So, Phil Haberkern, you have the floor. What do you want to talk about today? Um, you already touched on one of the main things, which is not just the question of who has power in this mm-hmm. scene, mm-hmm. but what's the relationship between power and authority? And oh, how do we see? Yeah, it. how do we see those things sort of interacting both within this moment and then more broadly in the characters of Tyrion and, and Cersei? Because they all are, right. Let's define some terms here. So, <laughs> what what would you say is the difference between power and authority? Oh my gosh, this is my my favorite question to ask my students, but I usually don't have to answer it myself. Um, <laughs> I, I would love to hear your answer to the question of the difference between power and authority. No, so so I'd say like on the most basic level, if I have power, it means that I can punch you in the face, right? I can exert my will against somebody else. I can do the thing I want to do. Mm, okay. But if I have authority, I convince all the people around and maybe even you that I had the right to punch you in the face, uh, okay. right? So, so power is often like, again, it's, uh, it's personal, it is coercive, whereas authority, there's an aspect of sort of social recognition, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you are granted authority by others, mm-hmm. even as you make a claim to it yourself, whereas power, you can just, you can take, and it, it's likely not to be permanent. There are limitations on that, but it's about the ability to do what you want versus the recognition that what you are doing is legitimate. So is there's like a do- social construct around who has the authority. right to do what, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, yeah. so much of the second of um, Clash of Kings is about who can claim the authority of the Iron Throne and how do you reconcile these very, you know, obviously conflicting uh-huh. sort of zero-sum game claims to the throne? And you see, you know, the strategies to undermine someone else's authority with r- rumor and slander versus, you know, within the context of King's Landing. Mm-hmm. In the same way, you know, Tyrion is trying to figure out what power do I have? How do I gain more authority? Varys and Littlefinger are doing the same thing. I think Cersei as she's depicted, has a little bit, maybe less of a nuanced sense of the, di- the distinction. Mm. But, uh, 
that's, I don't know, that's maybe a, a bigger question to address. So there's an analog to this little exchange between Tyrion and Lancel when the king's men come with a decree. Oh, they're, they're looking for uh, Gendry and yes. they confront Yorin and say, we have something, we have this piece of paper the, That's right. The king has declared that uh, that that these hostages come with us, or these men come with us. And Yorin basically says, "Screw you." The Night's Watch has, you know, we're non-political. We don't recognize that mm-hmm. piece of paper. And then, of course, my question was, well, who who has sort of the legal right to this? Oof. And. And and I guess, I mean, the person I was talking with during that chapter was basically saying, it kind of depends where you are, mm-hmm. you know, and because the social construct is going to change dramatically the farther you get north. Absolutely. Um, so, right. So I guess the question is, you know, I guess at that moment, because it's a war happening, it's like, well, maybe who has the most men and who has the most swords and horses and whatnot. Right, because that's how that that micro conflict sort of resolves, right? right? Like everybody rallies around Yorin and Gendry, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, later on right. when we have the death of Yorin, where it's it's a numbers game sure. and it's about power. Yeah. Authority is not at issue. Right. In this case, Lancel comes in on the surface. He has everything going for him. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's sleeping with the queen. So he has the queen's backing. He has a piece of paper mm-hmm. that basically has lent royal authority to the action. Uh, he's he's been knighted. He's taller, and he has a sword. And and Tyrion, you know, Tyrion's a you know shorter man. He has no sword. He's not been knighted. I guess, I mean, he has the title Hand of the King, right? Yep. But on paper, he should absolutely yield to to this decree by the Queen Regent. Mm-hmm. And yet, because he's got a little bit of information and he knows how to use it to his advantage, he is absolutely able to seize all of the power in the room. Mm-hmm. So here's an example where the authority is actually less important than the power. Correct. And but then the source of the power isn't what we think it should be. And I think that's sort of a central tension or a central area for exploration through all of, you know, Game of Thrones or uh, Song of Ice and Fire is how do people who are denied conventional forms of power use their available resources to gain it? Mm. And, you know, Tyrion is a classic example, Varys. Baelish, Cersei, every woman, except maybe Daenerys, because the dragons are, are a pretty good vehicle for power. But at least early on, Daenerys, like we we see all of these characters trying to get past the sort of military, noble, masculine power mm. structures mm. of the society and find the sort of spaces within it that they can exploit because of information, because of coin, because of sex. And over and over, we see characters, you know, using their their best features, I guess we might say, their, the characteristics that they can leverage to subvert the power structure that looks monolithic, but 
but over and over in the course of the books. And this scene is a great microcosm. If it's a monolith, it's on crumbling foundations, right? Mm. Um, mm. And I think that's that's my favorite part, I think, of the books. Hmm. Okay, so like I said, I always love Tyrion chapters. Mm-hmm. and But there are Tyrion chapters that kind of go broad. And what I mean by broad is that you get a bit more of Tyrion's past mm-hmm. or you know some, something happens in the chapter that opens up possibility for the future or mm-hmm. you get a, a bit of world building right those are all sort of aspects yes that can broaden the story and then there's chapters that go deep this is for me it's an example of a chapter that absolutely goes deeper than it mm-hmm. than anything else and it goes deep in a way that allows you to see that Tyrion may be the happiest he's ever been in his life. He feels like he's over Tysha. He He's like a fish in water in King's Landing. He feels like he's really good at being Hand of the King. Mm-hmm. And he has, I think, and maybe I should ask you this, I, get, I really get the sense that he has fallen in love with Shay. Oh, yes. I mean, it just almost delusional, blissful mm-hmm. love, right? It seems that way. And as this chapter ends, I, you know, it's almost like this guy has never been happier. And it, and it, I'm, and because of that, I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to, as I went back to this chapter, I was trying to, you know, remember reading it for the first time because i 100 agree with you that like this is the apogee of of Tyrion's mm-hmm. happiness yeah. but i i like you finish the chapter with a sense of foreboding yeah you know nothing ends well in this world but i was trying to recall the first time i read it you know did i think it was going to work out did i think that the story was you know this unlikely second son rises to the top by his wits and you know the love of the love of uh as we'd say you know for sort of contemporary film you know the hooker with a heart of gold right and the sellsword who suddenly has found his loyalty and i bet i did i think looking back i probably was like yes this storyline rules um (laughs) Tyrion's gonna win Uh um which feels about as naive as maybe Tyrion <laughs> is in this moment. But I'm with you. It it feels like this is the top of the mountain for him. Yeah. And it's it feels delusional. It feels completely delusional. I mean, at one point he, you know, he sort of, he tells himself I'm over Taisha, which of course is, mm-hmm. I think he's lying to himself. He, you know, I don't need Taisha. I don't need any other woman. I just need Shay. And then you get this little detail that, like, he's employed guards at the manse who are ugly men, mm-hmm. so that he doesn't have to be jealous of them. And then he, then he kind of like little bit of moment of self reflection. He's like, I guess I'm an ugly man, but maybe Shay doesn't even see ugliness. And I'm just <laughs> sitting there like, face in palm, like thinking, Oh no. Oh no. Why are you, you're so smart. You're so smart. And yet when it comes to women, you are such a fool. Um, you know, maybe Shay, maybe Shay doesn't see ugliness, right? <laughs> this is, this is a, a live possibility in Tyrion's mind. Yeah. But I mean, this goes back. I mean, like he's just such a, 
traumatized figure mm-hmm. in the books, not just from Taisha, but just from a childhood without love, that, that any seeming source of love and affection, you can see him sort of gravitating mm-hmm. towards it so strongly. And so even though, you know, this this chapter has this sort of antagonistic relationship between Cersei and Tyrion, you go back to their previous encounter where they're just dying of laughter over, you know, Stannis and Renly going to war with each other. Yeah. And, you know, even in that moment, he so quickly slips into what feels like legitimate, like fraternal affection for, for Cersei. Well, and, and also again, in the chapter previous to that, Cersei is legitimately wounded and cries at the mm-hmm. thought of Marcella being married off like she was. That's right. And Tyrion kind of reaches out to try to comfort her. So you almost see that these two have a history together and they don't entirely hate each other. No. And again, I think it's just, I mean, for, for him, I would psychologize it as like, there is a need for love and precious few places it might come from. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think, I feel like maybe there are moments too with his brother where you see that legitimate affection and concern for each other strongly. So it's not just with women, but it does feel like he's more more likely to seek it from that source. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that that relationship a little bit, but because so we were talking about you know like the the hand of the king is a legit mm-hmm. authority, and the queen region is a legit authority, and then you know what happens if they disagree on something. Um, but in addition to that, the people who occupy those offices are brother and sister. Yes. Which means that sort of overshadowing the chapter is Tywin. Mm-hmm. Because if, if these two have a dispute, it's almost like, I'm going to tell dad, you know, <laughs> so you have that element. It's like, well, it's not just that I'm going to kill you. It's that I'm going to, I'm going to have to go and explain this to my father and have him rule between us. And, and here's a, you know, here's a Lord in the kingdom who's, who does not have the office, mm-hmm. but absolutely has the power over these two. And, and I would say authority as well. You know, he is recognized as the most fearsome, competent, capable, ruthless sort of figure, arguably in the 17th. Yeah, he's the most dangerous guy in the book, for sure. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, why does Cersei send Lancel? You know, because this could have happened. Uh, This could have happened in any other room. It could have happened at any other time of day. Cersei decides, I'm going to send this 16-year-old recently knighted cousin to bring this document to my brother what does she think that what do you, what does she think that Lancel will do that she can't do or what or does she want Lancel to succeed I, I don't understand this oh that's such an interesting question because I I think I read it on almost like a, a simpler level which is that it's a miscalculation and that not just as a plot device, but the idea that she is so certain of her authority and power in this moment as Queen Regent mm-hmm. that she hears about Pycelle, she reacts instinctively, he is in her chambers, 
And she sends them as quickly as possible as a sort of demonstration that it is she who rules and Tyrion who serves. But in doing so, that sort of impulsive decision allows Tyrion to flip the script. Yeah. And so I guess I hadn't thought as much about maybe because Lancel seems like such a such a poor tool. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I mean, like, what what could he, he, he? I have a hard time imagining her thinking he could he could intimidate Tyrion. Surely she knows better than that. Yeah. All right. So here's a. All right. So are you talking about a previous chapter where they are face to face and mm-hmm. she she slaps him? Yes. And there's a there's a male female power dynamic there. Mm-hmm. Where Tyrion's basically saying, Marcella's a princess. She was born specifically to be married off. That That is mm-hmm. her primary purpose. That is her value. And so it's not just that he's brother hand of the king. It's that he's a male. Yes. And and Cersei is female. Mm-hmm. And I was, hope, I, I was thinking that maybe Cersei is hoping to avoid that particular dynamic for this particular exchange. Mm. And I think that, I mean, to reinforce that dynamic, I, I do think that in this case, Tywin's going to side with his son over his daughter, but maybe I've got that wrong. No, I think you're, I mean, when you think about the political ramifications of Tyrion's strategy, it, it works, right? Like it accomplishes the, the goal and it's too, it's too successful in terms of securing Dorne, or at least sidelining yeah. Dorne, that it's I, yes, Tywin is going to agree, and I certainly must know, not must know. I think she knows that she's been outmaneuvered around her daughter, and so she has this moment of protest, this sort of moment of fury, that this fate which she had hoped to avoid for her daughter to leverage her position as regent to protect her daughter from sort of being, you know, sort of a trade bait in the realm of politics but she can't and so there's this moment where she exercises herself physically against Tyrion, who's probably one of the only men in her life against which she can do that yeah. if we think about it yeah, yeah. she has a physical advantage over him and yet you know this maybe it's the lingering anger maybe it's a sense of her own security or primacy in this moment but it again i i've always i've always read or watched this decision as a sort of a miscalculation, a moment of right. impulsivity, of anger at Tyrion, trumping her own yeah. political sense. I mean, one, you could say, I mean, one possibility is that Cersei knows what's going to happen if Lancel goes and confronts Tyrion, that she'll end up having a sort of a double agent on her hands, and then mm-hmm. maybe she can manipulate information flow to Tyrion. True. But I almost feel like that's giving Cersei a, a bit too much credit. It feels like the the character that that I've met so far on these pages is more likely to miscalculate mm-hmm. in a in a moment of bad decision making. I'm not sure if I'm missing something here, but I I think it's it probably is more plausible that this is a miscalculation than it is a strategic move. Yeah, well, it's so, it's so interesting because I mean, I, I don't know. You've you've spent a lot of time talking about these books in great detail. Yeah. But I always get the feeling that Martin, as an author, is almost most conflicted about Cersei among all of his 
characters. Oh, interesting. Say more about on that. On the one hand, you know, here she is. She's this capable woman who's thwarted at every turn by her father and her brothers and the the demands made against her gender and a boorish husband uh-huh. and a one terrible son and two seemingly pretty good kids. And so she's hemmed in and pushing back against it and is often very articulate about, you know, if only I'd been born a male, right. I wouldn't have to deal with all this shit. But on the flip side, she is impulsive and she is vengeful and she totally sanctions the sort of long-term torture of Sansa. Uh-huh. And so she, there are all those aspects of her that are deeply, deeply sort of hateful. So in some ways, I just, I find myself in moments almost sort of adopting Cersei's point of view or trying mm-hmm. to actually mm-hmm. build some empathy for her as a character. And then she turns around and does something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I have this sort of whiplash towards her in a way there aren't, there aren't that many other individuals, I think, in the story for whom my feelings, I think, are, are getting yo-yoed back and forth quite the same way. <laughs> well, all right. So set in contrast, I mean, I mean, one way to look at this is everyone in the story, including Cersei, thinks I am Jamie Lannister, born female. Yes. Right. And of course, Jamie is limited in a number of ways. <laughs> right. Yes. He's got he's got all the pri- privilege in the world, like literally all of the privilege in the world. Um, and yet he is impulsive. He, you know, he, he will, he will let his sort of momentary lapse of judgment create problems for himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not the kind of guy who's going to be patient and, 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 and wait to see what, what someone else does before he makes a move. Right. Um, and normally he can sort of fight his way out of that situation. So, you know, if Cersei is that person born female, right, then I guess it's an interesting exploration of what would Jamie look like if he didn't have all of that privilege, right? Mm. Or maybe a slight spin on that is that besides all of the privilege of position and wealth and um, everything else that sort of comes with his political identity, you know, it's Jamie's physicality uh-huh. that that sets him apart right his ability to be the best at the skill that is seen as the height yeah of he's not just, he's not just a male he's like an he's like the ideal male he's the ideal and so do we flip that to say then and here again we see it that for cersei like the height of physicality like physical perfection for females in this world is that seductive aspect right but here again potentially an impulsive decision to start a relationship with your cousin <laughs> to manipulate him through this thing that has worked for uh-huh. you in the past, uh-huh. having sort of disastrous consequences because all of a sudden now, yeah. you know, you, you, you basically, you fought your way out of one thing to get into a bigger fight and it feels like she's done the same thing except, yes. um, yeah, yeah. you know, so, so it's an interesting, um, as you say, like, if they are mirror images of each other, that tracks to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jamie is going to jump into the fray with his sword in hand and just fight his way mm-hmm. out. What? And but of course, Cersei's sword is her body. Exactly. 
Exactly. Oh, and the power that wields over other people. That's fantastic. Now, you know, this, of course, we're going to compare her to her other brother in this chapter because <laughs> she clearly, I think, clearly makes a misstep. Tyrion mm-hmm. is going to, it's almost such a clear and decisive victory that he almost wants to crow about it. Yes. And and the the second best thing he can do besides crow is to like go celebrate mm-hmm. with his lover. And yet you see this guy at the height of his power completely reveal in his interior that he has this glaring weakness. He's got this fatal flaw and it, it has to do mm-hmm. with if he thinks a woman loves him he will completely lose all of his strategic ability. He'll lose all of his senses. He will jump head over heels and not, and you know, the consequences be damned or whatever. Absolutely. And so this kind of foreshadows like, Oh no, I, we actually see in this, in this chapter, your fatal flaw and app and the way that Martin writes, of course, this is, going to have a massive consequence for this character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and and I think in some ways too, you know, obviously both the books and the shows are vivid in the way they depict and describe sex. But the end of this chapter is to me, even among many other options, like it is particularly explicit yeah, there's a couple about, chapters like that in this book, but this one was like, yeah, it was it was a bit over the top. <laughs> it's a bit over the top, but but I would again, I would read that as this is Tyrion getting to celebrate yeah. his own physicality and his ability in this case to please someone in a way that like he he really doesn't get to, right? Like he is physically weak. This is a moment of celebration and of asserting his physical yeah. ability. Yeah, yeah. And I'm with you. It is quite over the top in what we might see as a sort of unnecessary way. But I mean, I think it's meant to reflect what you're saying. What you said earlier, this idea of like, this is the happiest he's ever been. He has this like surge of the feeling. He says it. I have all the power. I have the city. I have the girl. Yeah, yeah. He is claiming things. And I, yeah, he's, I think it's, he's feels so powerful. He can even overcome his physical deficit in this moment. Absolutely. And I, I also think it's crucial. And I'm this, if this doesn't make it in the podcast, cause it's a little like, I think it's creepy in the book, but like the fact that she's asleep matters. Yeah. Because I think there's this idea that she, there's no faking. There's no artifice. As soon as she wakes up, she says the perfect thing, you know, to sort of, to, absolutely stroke his ego in the way that mm-hmm. he needs it. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea, but like I said, that's, that's maybe is a step too far. So, well, not only that is that she's young and, and I, and, and he mm-hmm. notes that, you know, he, he notes yes. that she is, she is young and this sort of makes her even more perfect in his eyes. And so there's all kinds of problems that are presented Mm-hmm. Uh, for this character, who who we love, who we absolutely love, and and I think you know, if in so much as a book like this can have a main character, Tyrion is the main character. I think so. I think so. Rereading it, like in preparation for this, it is clear 
he is sort of supposed to be our avatar um, in some ways. Like he is our guide to this world and he's walking us through, you know, all of these sort of machinations. Mm. And I think maybe not totally identify with him, but we are certainly supposed to like him. Yeah. So, all right. So that's interesting to me. What what is the fascination with Tyrion? Like, why do we? Why are we drawn to Tyrion? He he's he is something of an unlikely hero in a lot of ways, and yet mm-hmm. th- there's something about him always being in this one down position, but almost being always the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. And what is the fascination with Tyrion? Do you think? Why do we? Why do uh... we want to like Tyrion? Most of us are probably not confident in our ability to put on plate armor and swing a sword uh, and not get immediately (laughs) killed. So again, I think the prevalent sort of value system of Westerosi society is so sort of toxically, militantly masculine that I think we, we push back a little bit against it. Then the other people who might sort of champion alternative positions, like Littlefinger, you know, they are too conniving. You know, Davos Seaworth is the other character who I think invites, obviously invites our sympathy and empathy throughout as another, you know, he's a fundamentally decent person watching a terrible thing unfold around him that he feels unable to control. So I would, he's an interesting second. And then, you know, I think it's also this book really decenters Rob Stark, who might be the other person we could identify That's with. That's interesting. But he's not as big of a character. I'm trying to remember how many, you know, like he's, we see him more through his mother's eye. Mm. Um, so, so I think it's kind of a, who else are we supposed to identify with? And, you know, we, we might trick ourselves into being the smartest people in the room, but we're unlikely, at least I am, uh, to trick myself into thinking I'm the strongest or the fastest mm. Mm. <laughs> or, or anything like that. Hmm. So, this is sort of, sort of un- undermined in this chapter. But I feel like with so many other characters in this book, their perspective is so limited. It's like you you're looking at the mm-hmm. world through Bran's eyes, and of course, Bran has the limitations of a child's point of view, mm-hmm. or Theon is lacks a certain self awareness. Yes, um, you can kind of get a more self-aware perspective from cat, but you know, cats, we've only seen a couple cat chapters, you know, here we are mm-hmm. Tyrion's. This is his seventh POV cat. Cat only has two at this oh point. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, I mean, you've got a lot of these other characters, but mm-hmm. I think almost always you just imagine that Tyrion has outthought the, the other person in the room. Yes. And so you feel like you get a little bit more of the story revealed from his perspective than maybe you would, another character i think that's right because he's trying to balance so many different perspectives to maintain this sort of tentative graft grasp on power that he's gotten himself right Mm -hmm. he needs to be deeply concerned about his father and what his father wants and about lannister military success in the field he needs to be aware of what's going on with stannis Mm -hmm. he needs to know how stannis and renly's conflict is going he needs to keep one eye on his brother and how he might free him but also another eye on his sister plus the small council and the kingdom's finances and forging a giant chain and wildfire you know he has he's got the most balls in the air right and is very 
articulate about not so much the strain that puts on him, but the fact that he is aware that he's juggling all of these things in a way that I think you're totally right. Other other POV characters in this book are are so focused on what's immediately in front of them. Mm. And he never is. Well, and he's also, he's almost an avatar for the modern mind mm-hmm. because he is so cynical uh, about things. He's not overly religious. He's, you know, he kind of sees through all of the mm-hmm. chivalric nonsense, uh, which I think is sort of one of the, the key themes of the book. Mm-hmm. He can, and, he's, and he's funny. You know, that goes, that goes <laughs> yes. a long way. That helps. That, that helps. No, that's really interesting about like the cynicism or at least the realism about what's going on. And again, like how that forces you to take certain actions and not just, you know, over and against religion or chivalry or the sort of knightly ethic yeah. of the kingdom. I don't. Is he real? Is he enough of a realist or cynic that he even pushes back on the notion of family loyalty? I don't know, because he is very much a Lannister. Right. In in so much as that, like, he's going to work his ass off to make sure the Lannister name is on top at the end. Even to the point that he's going to support a boy king who's a moral monster, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's really weird because we're rooting for Tyrion, but what what is Tyrion working for? Tyrion's working to keep Joffrey on the throne. <laughs> yeah, Which, and we so we all hate Joffrey so much, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little it's a little odd. It's a little odd to the, yeah, hooray Tyrion, you know. So that's interesting then that he's able to shake, or we identify him as shaking certain sort of cultural constraints uh-huh. that are at work in this world, but the family piece of it he can't. The people who, you know, in some ways, particularly his father, have been the worst to him. Yeah. For whom he has no real reason to love. As you say, for a nephew who is, you know, worse than a white walker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet he's struggling for that. Uh-huh. And how do we preserve this? I, I don't know. That's a really interesting. He's a fascinating, complicated character. For, and he's, you know, let's just call it out. He will eventually murder Shay. Yeah. After this chapter, he uh, he is at, he loves her, or at least loves the idea of her, or something. He's convinced himself that he loves her. Mm-hmm. And oh man, and he's she's going to betray him, or at least that's how he's going to perceive it. Mm-hmm. He's going to strangle her to death, and and for some weird, bizarre, mystical reason. We're still gonna root for him. <laughs> we're still we're still gonna we're still gonna forgive him and want the best for him in the end and hope he's hope he's he can find happiness. That's wild to think about because like you know in, he's also gonna burn a bunch of people to yeah. death <laughs> with a clever ruse in Blackwater Bay. I mean, he's not a good person, <laughs> and perhaps that's the other piece of it. You this. mentioned he, Davos. We love Davos. He's gonna kill all of Davos' sons. Uh, poor Davos. <laughs> I love that guy. But um, but it's also, I mean, maybe one of the other reasons though, is he has no illusions about being a good person. Uh-huh. You know, he is pretty clear about what he is capable of from a relatively early, early stage. Uh-huh. And, you know, this idea of sort of 
self-preservation or familial preservation is a primary motivation for him. And maybe there's a little recognition of that, again, in those last lines about his self-recognition about how much he loves, you know, playing this political game, but winning this political game. And that becomes, you know, Shea is part of it. She's a sort of spoil of war in some sense for him. But um, I mean, she's literally a sex worker who he found the night before a battle. Exactly. Exactly. So I, uh, yeah, it's a Martin's ability to, to make us sustain our investment in terrible people, you know, is one of his great gifts as an author. Um, (laughs) Fantastic. So notable introductions in this chapter. Um, We hear about Marae, I guess that's how you say her Mm -hmm. name. Who has silver hair, mm. and alabaster skin, and who can read? And initially, I thought, Ooh. is this a is this a Targaryen? Am I Targaryen offshoot? Yeah, like... interesting. Like I, this is a it's a very odd combination. Yeah, uh, not violet eyes, but green eyes. So you know, not perfect, but it did it did kind of call my attention here. And then, of course. Uh, another sex worker, Darcy or Dancy, mm-hmm. Dancy, Dancy. Um, notable differences in the show. We hit, it didn't have any sort of brothel subterfuge where he like sneaks up to into a room and then goes mm-hmm. down the you know secret hatchway and finds Shay in a different part of the city. Right. Uh, all of that is a, a book only detail. I think in in the show. She's just hanging out in his in his bedroom the whole time. Right. And we also don't have um, the whole sort of Jace by water is not a factor. Yeah, that's right. In, in, the, in the show either, which that's fine. Let's simplify the narrative yeah, sure. a little bit. <laughs> sure. Right. Um, do, notable departures in this chapter. No notable departures unless it's like Lancel's pride. Lancel, mm. Lancel loses his pride utterly in this chapter. Yes, he does. Um, poor, poor Lancel. And you know, Tyrion. We were talking about you know whether he's a moral person. He he knows that Lancel is likely to die, mm-hmm. and he's like, mm, it could could happen either that Jamie comes back, just kills the boy, or it could be that Cersei finds out that he's spying for me and yep. she kills the boy, and then he says something like. Eh, pro- probably Cersei, probably. but but he's almost kind of resolved to the fact that the move that he just made, that he's so excited about, mm-hmm. will result in his cousin's death. But I I I think he, I would say Tyrion was already convinced that Lancel was going to die. I mean, imagine being caught between Joffrey, Cersei, Jaime, and Tywin. Uh-huh. You know, which which his actions of sleeping with his cousin right. like he has put himself there already and lancel is not that smart he's well he's 16 years old i forgot right. That. like how is he possibly <laughs> gonna sort of keep this um you know varus already knows so yeah. yeah i think Tyrion probably sees himself as earning a benefit from his death but not causing his death and then uh, last thing i was going to mention is mm. that we have actual confirmation about Cersei and Lancel's involvement in Robert's death. Yes. Which we kind of knew already because Varys told us, but mm-hmm. to have Lancel kind of spill the tea 
directly, you know, mm-hmm. he, he's he's conveying something that he knows from personal involvement. It kind yeah. of confirms what we what we thought we knew, at least. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because there's you know there's this kind of deflection that's going on. If, you know, I just gave him the wine. Yeah, the strong wine. Yeah, I didn't do anything. She told other than me that. to do it. She told me to do it. Well, Tywin told me to do what she said. Uh-huh. <laughs> she said, give him the wine. Tyrion's but, you know, I guess... like, oh, did he also tell you a fucker? Is that... oh, oh, my God. <laughs> he just, uh, this kid so has cruel. no, he has so no, he, absolutely no chance. Well, and it's fascinating because, you know, again, we're, here he is. I'm with you. Like, he is, you know, ha, 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 been thrown in the lion's den. But, um. You know, he has a sweet voice. He has a terrible mustache. You know, he's just this this kid. And yet, you know, he's always sneering. He's always adopting this sort of yeah. uh, certain attitude. And again, with just those few details, I, I don't feel particularly sympathetic towards Lancel. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should. Well, yeah, but it's it, very yeah, deaf. It's one of these situations where this guy's in an impossible situation. He's been told mm-hmm. to do certain things by very evil people. Mm-hmm. Now he's in too deep and he's way over, you know, and Tyrion's mind is just going to think circles around his, right? So you should, yes. you should feel a little bit of sympathy for him, but nope. <laughs> and I think it comes back to Tyrion's perspective, right? Because Tyrion has been having to put up with, you know, doofuses like this for his entire oh, life, right. who because of their, because they're Sir and because they have a sword, uh-huh. he can't, do this he can't yeah there's no comeuppance and like yeah now is the time he can flex and sort of exert his power right. over this kid i think something but shifts be- when lanzo calls him imp mm-hmm. i think there's something like okay all right all right here, here I, it comes <laughs> <laughs> you have sealed your fate yeah. um so it's it's again i think there's as you said earlier and i don't think i had kind of run the numbers in my head of how powerfully Tyrion's point of view shapes this book. Uh-huh. And you're, but you're right. And it, it's it, in some sense, it's just that ubiquity that sort of pushes us into his camp where we see Lancel's one more arrogant night making fun of the little guy uh-huh. until. Yeah. He's almost a stand in for every mm-hmm. young, brash, tall, blonde knight who's mm-hmm. called Tyrion an imp. Yeah, you might see that as, in a lesser degree. There's a sort of parallel there to Theon, you know, who's becoming sort of a little bit more of a voice throughout uh-huh, this book uh-huh. of another person who's going to be all of these assumptions about privilege and power and suddenly getting yes. humbled in an unexpected way. That's right. That's right. By his family. <laughs> Phil, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, certainly my pleasure. A, I want to say it's a, a sort of a glorious ch- Tyrion chapter, but it's, it's hard <laughs> not to see that little tinge of tragedy. No, it's coming. Yeah. And again, it's so hard to go back to that. I was actually, I think in one of the episodes, you know, you. so I started reading these in 1997. Oh, really? So I was like an so you, early, oh, super an early adopter yeah. of the books. And I just, you know, 25 years later, it's so hard <laughs> to remember was i was i full of dread and foreboding mm-hmm. as he's having this sort of really lovely end to his evening um or 
you know, did I really think he was going to come out on top? And I, I, I expect it was the latter. Um, but man, coming back to it, <laughs> I, I had a, a sinking feeling in my stomach as I finished the chapter. <laughs> oh, goodness. Phil, fantastic. I'm very, what a fun very conversation. Low, very low maintenance. Absolutely. This is great. And because uh, I'm, you know, not thinking about it right now, but at some point later this summer, I will start thinking about teaching because I'm teaching the Game of Thrones mm-hmm. class again in the fall. So I'll, I'll turn my head back to Thrones and I'll circulate it among my students and they'll hopefully get a kick out oh, of it. Good. So, yeah, but this is great. I enjoyed it. And it's fun to it's fun to go back. I haven't reread the books in a while. Or this, I hadn't reread. I should say, Clash of Kings in a while, so it's kind of fun to go back and. It really is. This. This, this second book is just. I mean, I love the first book too. But yes. The second man, the second book is just masterful. It's really good, it, but what's so so funny is I is you're going back to it. There's so much of the book where not much is actually happening. You know, there's just a lot of conversation Mm -hmm. and like the way it builds expectation and foreboding and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and then the smoke monster shows up (laughs) or the shadow monster and you're like oh man this rips (laughs) like (laughs) so that was my that Uh was the you know just that slow build he's so good at it he's so good at it oh And now, Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. If you were on the fence with Joffrey, <laughs> I feel like, I mean, not that I, I can imagine there were a lot of people that were, but this is this is sort of the... It's always the handsome ones that turn into <laughs> devils. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that was that was bothersome. <laughs> I mean, obviously. Bronn and Tyrion are really underestimating how monstrous Tyrion or uh, Joffrey really is. Yeah, and so that was what I was kind of wondering too, because is this gonna is Tyrion gonna be taken aback? Like, oh, I had no idea he was like this. This takes me as a surprise, or was this like, okay, now I know? Like, was it with Tyrion? I feel like everything is a touch of an experiment. Yeah, that's right. I think so. And so it kind of although the way he plays Lancel's, I mean, he plays Lancel like a fiddle. Oh yeah, that's great. He, I mean, he <laughs> from start to finish, Lancel's yeah. just no match. No, 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 no. Even at the end with the with the let's drink. Oh, you don't have a cup. <laughs> he just closes the door on. I was like, that such a mic drop moment at that point.